Hi everyone, welcome back to our Logical Bible Study. We're continuing in the Farewell Discourse in John chapter 13 onwards. Today we're looking at John chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. So as always, we want to look at the text, start by reading it, and then dive into the literal sense of the text. What did it probably mean in the mind of the original author, as far as we can, we can get to that? So here's the reading for today. Jesus said to his disciples, If you know me, you know my father too. From this moment, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, let us see the father and then we shall be satisfied. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, said Jesus to him, and you still do not know me. To have seen me is to have seen the father. So how can you say, let us see the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak as from myself. It is the Father living in me who is doing this work. You must believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I believe it on the evidence of this work, if for no other reason. I tell you most solemnly, whoever believes in me will perform the same works as I do myself. He will perform even greater works because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. So let's have a look at this gospel text. So the context here, what's been happening, we're in the Last Supper. So Jesus has begun the farewell discourse, which begins towards the end of chapter 13. And the things he's just said prior to the reading today is, My father's house has many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And then he also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the father except by me. So what we're about to hear is actually an extension of that very thought. No one comes to the Father except by me. So verse 7, If you know me, you know my Father too. From this moment you know him and have seen him. So the disciples are worried that they don't know the Father and they don't know the way to the Father. But Jesus here says, he's reassuring them that he is the way to the Father. If they know him, they do know the way to the Father. Jesus, the way we can look at this is Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. He's the perfect messenger. So if one truly knows the Son, they know the Father. And this is a consistent theme all throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus here says that if they have seen him, they have seen the Father. That's how closely united they are. But then Philip says, Lord, let us see the Father and then we shall be satisfied. So Philip has this really strong desire. He wants to see the Father. Now, Jesus has kind of just answered this, though. Jesus has just said that they have already seen the Father. So why does Philip here feel the need to say, Lord, let us see the Father? Well, he certainly doesn't understand what Jesus has said. Maybe Philip is thinking that Jesus has just promised to show them the Father in the future. Uh, rather than Jesus saying it's something that they already have access to. So maybe 
Philip is hoping for some sort of grand theophany, big grand experience of the Father, kind of like what Moses says in Exodus 33, where Moses says, Lord, let me see your glory. Maybe it's he's expecting this big thing like that. So that's certainly possible too. Verse 9, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, said Jesus to him, and yet you still do not know me. So Jesus has been saying, all throughout his ministry, things like, I and the Father are one. So by now, Philip and the other apostles should have understood this basic principle. In fact, Philip was one of the first disciples to be called, right in John chapter 1. So Philip should have understood Jesus' basic identity by now. Jesus continues, To have seen me is to have seen the Father. So how can you say, let us see the Father? Now Jesus, you have to be careful here, Jesus is not claiming to be the Father, but rather to be the perfect representation of him. And if you go through the Gospel of John, you'll see that that is the specific claim Jesus is making. He is the best, perfect representation of the Father. Later in the New Testament, this is developed more. Hebrews talks about him being sort of the perfect image of the Father. And Colossians 1.15 calls Jesus the, the visible image of the invisible God. So this has a lot of implications for our theology of the Trinity. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So there's this deep union between the Father and the Son. The Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. That's how present they are to each other. The words I say to you, I do not speak as from myself. So Jesus emphasizes here, as he does in lots of places, that he's not speaking his own words. He's speaking the words of the Father. Jesus' mission is to reveal the Father to people. That's what's going on. It is the Father living in me who is doing this work. So other translations have this as works plural. The Father does his works. And that would make sense because in the context of the Gospel of John, works means miracles. So here we learn that the Father actually dwells within Jesus. This is probably new information. We knew that Jesus had the approval of the Father and speaks the words of the Father. But now we learn that the Father actually dwells within Jesus himself and he carries out actions through Jesus. So when Jesus does his healings, not only is it designed to point people back to the Father, it is in a real sense the Father himself doing these works through Jesus. It's this really close, intimate connection between the Father and the Son. We'll probably never fully understand it. Uh, But Jesus uses language like this to help us understand it. Verse 11, you must believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Notice that you must believe. He's telling his apostles, because they're going to be the leaders of the church, that they need to correctly understand the relationship between the Son and the Father as far as possible in order to preach the message of the kingdom of God. Jesus then says, believe it on the evidence of this work, if for no other reason. Other translations render this a little better, I think. They put it as, believe me for the sake of the works themselves. All throughout his ministry, Jesus does miracles or works to help people understand his identity. That's the point of them. Jesus here at the Last Supper, he recognizes that it's hard for the apostles to understand the deep connection between the Father and the Son. So he encourages them to at least believe, even if they can't fully grasp this Trinity stuff, he encourages them to believe at least based on what they have seen, the miracles. 
The idea is that if they think logically about the miracles that they've seen Jesus do, they should realize that these are only possible through the Father. So they don't have to fully understand the mysteries of the Trinity. They just need to really think about Jesus' miracles and realize that he must be empowered by the Father. That's kind of Jesus' almost last resort here. He says, if you can't believe what I'm saying, at least believe because of the miracles. Verse 12, I tell you most solemnly... So Jesus is about to say something quite important and other translations might have this as amen, amen, I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, now remember believe means to trust in New Testament terminology. So whoever believes in me is someone who trusts in Jesus' identity and teachings continually, not just believes in him in an intellectual way to trust in his identity and teachings will perform the same works as I do myself. He will perform even greater works. Now, this is quite striking, and it's um, quite a controversial passage. It says that people who believe in Jesus will be able to do better and greater works than Jesus himself. So let's talk about what we do know from this passage. Well, clearly the works are miracles. Jesus says that believers, true believers, will be able to do great miracles even greater than what he did. Now, the next verse clarifies that such miracles are only possible because Jesus himself will do them through people. So people won't do it on their own strength. Even believers won't be able to do it on their own strength. It'll, in fact, be Jesus doing it through people. Now, does this apply to everyone? Can every believer do miracles equal to or greater than Jesus? Maybe. It depends on what you think about Uh, spiritual gifts and how miracles work. But we can say not necessarily. Jesus is not saying that every single believer will be able to do it to the same extent. However, certainly the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts and then early church history, its miracles were very active in the early church. So Jesus might have in mind mostly the early church here. There's healings, there's raising the dead. But even today, lots and lots of these things are happening all around the world. There's healings all over the world. People are being raised from the dead. Christians are still doing miracles. A great book for this and an incredibly eye-opening and incredibly scholarly in-depth book that catalogues all of these modern-day miracles that I'll recommend to you is a book called Miracles, and it's by Craig Keener. So it's a two-volume set, Miracles by Craig Keener. Um, Huge book, but it really goes through all of these real-life examples where miracles have been recorded in recent times, not in 2,000 years ago, but in recent times. It's quite an incredible book. So if you're interested in seeing how Christians have been able to do even greater works than Jesus, check out that book. And then Jesus says, because I go to the Father. So notice the word because there. So there's a link between people being able to do miracles and Jesus going to the Father. In context, this probably means Jesus is trying to communicate that he's not simply going to die or go out of existence once he leaves. He's actually going to the Father in heaven. So therefore, he will be able to continue his work from heaven and make miracles possible. A couple of verses later, we learn, not in today's reading, but in next time, that he will send his Holy Spirit to assist in the process of doing miracles. That's in verse 16 and 17. So Jesus will be in heaven to help the miracles happen and the Holy Spirit will be there as well. There's another perspective on this though when it says 
because I ascend to the Father, because I go to the Father. In his ascension, Jesus' body is glorified and Jesus glorifies humanity. So some scholars have thought that maybe what Jesus means is through Jesus' ascension, he enables these great works, these great miracles to be performed. Because when the apostles do these works in the book of Acts, they are united to the risen Jesus. And in that sense, maybe that's what it means by saying the miracles will be greater because by then, uh, humanity will be glorified in the ascension. Verse 13, another controversial passage. Whatever you ask for my name, whatever you ask for in my name, I will do. So we need to talk a bit about name. In the Bible, particularly New Testament's time, to do something in a person's name was basically an affirmation of the person's identity. So it wasn't like a magic word or a spell or something. To invoke a person's name was to invoke their identity and everything they stand for. So to do something in Jesus' name is basically to express faith in his identity and in union with his will. And because Jesus does only the Father's will, that means whenever we do things in Jesus' name, we're also doing it in accordance with the Father's will. That's the basic idea. It doesn't mean just saying Jesus' name at the end of a prayer. It actually means doing something in accordance with Jesus' identity and his will. So the teaching here is that if you ask, at least for the apostles, if the apostles ask for something in the identity and in the will of Jesus, Jesus will do it. Which makes sense because if it's Jesus' will, then it's the Father's will. And if it's the Father's will, then he's going to want to do it. So it's kind of an extension of this principle in the Our Father of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The key thing here is the will of the Father and the Son. This is a promise to the apostles specifically. It may not be a promise to all Christians today. In the early years of preaching the kingdom of God, particularly in the book of Acts, God has deliberately set things up so that there's going to be lots of miracles and gifts of the Spirit to get Christianity off the ground in those early years. That's how God set it up. Now, miracles do continue to happen today, certainly. Lots of evidence for that. But maybe that promise that's given here does not apply to all believers in the same way. I think if you look at the book of Acts, it does appear in the book of Acts that any time the apostles ask for a miracle that's in line with Jesus' will, it happens straight away. If you look at the world today, it doesn't always happen. A lot of times people, even good Christians, pray for certain things that seem to be in the Father's will, but they don't happen. So I suspect that this particular promise is just for the apostles, which is who he's talking to at this time. Not that miracles can't still happen. They certainly can. Next thing Jesus says is, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, this is the purpose of all miracles, that the Father would be glorified. And particularly in the early years, when the apostles are trying to expand the kingdom of God, they want to preach God's will and God's kingdom. Jesus from heaven will enable miracles to be performed because he'll be at the right hand of the Father. And in that sense, he's going to glorify the Father through the work that he does from the right hand of the Father. And then he concludes by repeating, if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. So there's a lot in that theologically. So this farewell discourse that we've been looking at, it continues in the lectionary in the coming weekdays. We're going to hear more of this Uh, farewell discourse, but the very next part gets skipped. So verses 15 to 21, which would come next after this, the only time you can hear that in the lectionary is on the sixth 
Sunday of Easter in year A. So you might want to go through our podcast archives to find that one. The sixth Sunday of Easter in year A is the very next part of this farewell discourse. So let's briefly take a look at some short catechism passages which reference here John chapter 14 verses 7 to 14. Paragraph 470 is in the discussion about the Trinity, and it's in the section about how is the Son of God man. Here's what it says. The Son of God therefore communicates to his humanity his own personal mode of existence in the Trinity. In his soul as in his body, Christ thus expresses humanly the divine ways of the Trinity. And it references there the passage today from John chapter 14, particularly when it says the Father is in me. So there's some deep Trinitarian applications here from this passage, certainly, that are well worth meditating on. Paragraph 516 says, Christ's whole earthly life, his words and deeds, his silences and sufferings, indeed his manner of being and speaking, is revelation of the Father. Jesus can say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and the Father can say, this is my Son, my chosen, listen to him. Because our Lord became man in order to do his Father's will, even the least characteristics of his mysteries manifest God's love among us. So right in the middle of that catechism paragraph, there's a quote, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, which comes here from John chapter 14. Paragraph 2633 says, when we share in God's saving love, we understand that every need can become the object of petition. Christ, who assumed all things in order to redeem all things, is glorified by what we ask the Father in his name. And then there's a similar thought in paragraph 2614, which I'll include in the show notes. It talks about how that's a new thing in the new covenant. And then lastly, paragraph 2815, which is a discussion about the Our Father. It says, prayer to our Father is our prayer if it is prayed in the name of Jesus. So uh, the Catechism talks a little bit about this idea of praying in the name of Jesus and what it means to do things in the name of Jesus. So we will leave it there for today. It's a, a passage that's well worth meditating on. Thank you for listening and please tune in again tomorrow.